0: Welcome to the Westside Investors Network. WIN, your community of investing knowledge for growth. This is the Real Estate Professionals Investing Podcast for real estate professionals by real estate professionals. This show is focused on the next step in your career, investing. Thank you for listening. And please, if you like our content, rate us on your podcast provider. Just a quick disclaimer the views and opinions expressed in this podcast are for educational purposes only and should not be construed as an offer to buy or sell any shares or securities, make or consider any investments or take any other action. And now, AJ and Chris Shepard. Our guest for today is the principal of Sumner's Capital, a private equity firm focused on placing investor capital into residential multifamily assets. He began his real estate investing career in 2013 in San Antonio and has been in the market ever since. Here to discuss on leveraging mastermind groups, tips on expanding your network, and how to properly structure third-party vendors as partners for your business, let's welcome Kenneth Sumners. All right, today we've got Kenneth Sumners here with us and he is principal of the Sumners Capital. began his real estate investing career in 2013 in San Antonio. Kenneth, thanks so much for being on the show. Do you just want to tell us maybe a little bit more about yourself and how you got started in real estate investing?
1: Sure. Thanks guys. Thanks for having me on. Yeah, I guess I'm principal of Sumner's Capital. So that's a private equity company focused on residential multifamily in San Antonio that we operate and just trying to place capital for investors who are looking to get into that space. So that's kind of where I'm going right now, where I started is kind of a little bit back, back in about 2012, 2013 area in the single family world and started buying a couple houses then. And one went pretty well and the second didn't go so well. So I'm pretty analytical as a person. So I looked back at that specific deal and I said, well, not only where has that gone wrong, but what's the future trajectory of this, you know, business. And I found that I, you know, to replace my current income at the time, I would have to basically, you know, have this as a full-time job buying stuff just to replace that income. And I said that's not really terribly scalable, and backed away from it for a bit. And then kind of jumped back in in 2017 when I met some folks that were doing the commercial or residential multifamily kind of side of the house, and and really you know resonated with what that was and the fact that I was you know. I guess an average W-2 earning person, I could participate in this. And that was a big leap for me to understand that that can really scale and you can potentially even become an active investor in that space. So it's really what drove me to multifamily.
2: Kenneth, so you said you've taken down three deals, three larger deals. And did you syndicate
1: those deals? I did. Yeah. So my goal was to start out with the bigger deals. I joined a group that was, you know, that was specializing or really focusing on those bigger deals. And they were like, there really isn't a prerequisite for starting out in a, you know, fourplex and eightplex, 16, build yourself up to, you know, 40 unit, then a hundred unit or whatever. So it really doesn't, you know, doesn't really matter. You know, you can learn a lot and make sure that you can understand the steps, Instead of doing that, I really leveraged partners and brought on partners who had been through those steps or had operated properties in that bigger scale, and then jumped straight into 176 unit as my first deal instead of of ramping up. So I know that was a little unique to do, from what I understand. But I kind of didn't know any better, (laughs) so I just went straight (laughs) into it.
0: That's pretty cool. Can you kind of describe like the partners or the you know what sort of functions they did in the partnership? And just like how that's Absolutely, broken down. Yeah.
1: So the first big partner that you got to have, if you can't qualify for your own deals, you know, qualify for a, you know, 10, 15, $20 million loan, which most people can't, is a key principal partner or a guarantor partner who can come on. And I tended to cut off or cut out a, a section of the equity for them just to sign on the note as a guarantor of the of the loan. And so they had had experience, they had the net worth and liquidity that are needed to get that done. So that was a big partner to have on the property or on the deal. And then also partnering with people, if you can't raise the down payment, if you will, or the capital that's required to take the deal down yourself, either your personal funds or your network, then you can also you know, bring in other partners Who, amongst other responsibilities can also help you run, you know, raise capital for the deal as well. And then you bring them as a partner, you know, and provide them equity as well. So those are kind of the two major partners that you can have that I had on these deals. But also there's some vendor partners like, you know, your loan broker, obviously the property broker itself, insurance partners, that type of thing. Obviously the property management company, because 176 unit property, you know, it doesn't require it, but for me, I wasn't scaled to be able to be a property manager at the time. So I partnered with a great property management company to, to help me do that, run the day-to-day.
0: And you said at the time, is that something that you've gotten into more or?
1: Oh, no, I'm still kind of in that state. Yeah. So maybe in the future, we'll see. But right now I still leverage third-party property management and I like it. It helps me grow where I'm trying to grow, which is you know building the acquisition pipeline.
2: So... You chose to call your company Sumner's Capital. And I mean, but you're mostly focusing on multifamily real estate. And so why pick the name Sumner's Capital?
1: So I went through a number of name potential options. And really, it's my thought was I wanted to put my name behind what we were doing here. And so I think if your name is on the building, if you will. It becomes a little bit more personal. It builds some credibility. You know that your name is literally on the line for doing this, and so that's why I put you know Sumner's is my last name, Sumner's Capital, into and that really is what the heart of what we what I'm doing as a syndicator is private equity placement. I'm putting it into assets that I'm managing, but or I'm managing those assets. But really, it's a matter of how do I get the return of the capital that's being placed with me. That's kind of it was. A little bit out of lack of creativity somewhat. And then also just trying to put my name on the door and showing that I'm behind this. It's not some marketing term or something. It's just my name. This is who I am. Cool.
0: So you went from these couple houses and then like kind of just can you describe to us like how you kind of came to this idea of, you know, going, I mean, essentially pro, you know, 100 and like you said, 176 units is a lot to take down. And like, what was the process like trying to figure out how to actually get that done? I mean, that's not just something like, oh, you know, I bought a house, I didn't do so well. And then, oh, I'm going to jump into 176. Like, There's got to be some time and kind of some thought and some other stuff that went into that to make, I mean, making that leap can be tough. And I think a lot of our audience here is kind of contemplating, like, do I make that leap or you know, if I do, what are the next steps, what do I need to do? Obviously listening to this podcast is one of the first steps, but, you know, in addition to that, can you kind of go through how you made those steps towards getting to where you are now?
1: Absolutely. And so, you know, as y'all know, you know, being in the space, it's a lot about who, you know, and building the education. So there was a big gap between when I did those deals in 2012, 2013. And when I bought my first multifamily deal as the lead sponsor, in 2021, so there's a lot of time in there that I took to kind of figure this out. Really, 2017 was when I in earnest kind of discovered the whole asset class in general. So I met some folks. You know, I was like, I have some. I just sold my equity in my data consulting company that I was running, and I had some capital. And I said, I don't want to just put this in a stock market and just you know not have any control over it. So I was trying to find a good place to place that equity. So I had some colleagues that we're doing these multifamily deals, these syndications. And so I came across that world and said this really resonates with me. I've always wanted to be in real estate. And so that just, you know, it's you got to have some kind of impetus of like this is the first, you know, first part of, of even learning about the market in general. So once you know that, then it's about education, right? So podcast just like this one, you know, I was just, you know, having any kind of windshield time, I had a podcast on, I'd go for a walk for lunch and just put my earbuds in and listen to, you know, hundreds of real estate podcasts doing similar things that what I was trying to do, a few books that I was reading to make sure I can round out that knowledge. But really the accelerator was joining an education kind of group, a mastermind, you know, kind of coaching group out there and that really took it from, you know, just general knowledge and kind of understanding a little bit about how this works to having those true kind of stair steps of what you need to do in real time to get it done. Like, who do you need to know? What kind of team you need to put together? And what's really important? You know, the thing that I learned, like you can read a book and it might tell you, you know, three different ways of how to do this thing. But 99% of people do it this one way. So you can spend all your time learning three ways to do it. But if everybody does it this one way, that's really the place to focus. You know, yeah, it's good to know all three ways, but really focus on that third way, right? That everybody's doing and you can't really get that so much from books. Sometimes you can get it from podcasts and just kind of being in the area and listening to these, you know, people professionals talk about how they do their stuff. But you know, people don't have a lot of time that are professionals in real estate to sit down with you and really walk through it. So it's nice to join a program that, yeah, these are people that are doing this, you know, today, right now, and learning how to do it. So that was a huge part of my journey is going through really professional real estate training, if you will, or joining a mastermind coaching kind of group to get there.
0: How long were you in that group before you kind of like got your wheels under you?
1: Yeah, I joined, I guess, early 2020 and bought my first deal towards the end of 21. But I also, there's some other steps you can join, or there's other steps you can kind of enter that market. You can maybe join somebody else's syndication that they're the primary sponsor on, right? And join their deal and add value to that and not run it yourself per se. And that's sometimes the kind of the stair step people take. Also, passive investing is a great way to learn a lot about what people expect, what kind of communication happens between the sponsors and the investor. That's really good information. But yeah, so I jumped straight into the lead sponsor role. So that took me probably a little bit longer than, you know, it could have just to join a partnership. But that was my laser focused goal. That was all I was going to do. So I built probably, you know, a year or two in just building network, building education, and kind of getting that framework for how to take these deals down. And when I was actually going through that first one, it was kind of, I don't know, it felt like it was natural because I learned all this, all these steps. And then once I completed it, we closed and started running the property. I looked back, I was like, what did we just do? You know, I just bought a, you know. $15 million, $20 million apartment complex that I'm like the manager on, you know, on the papers. It's like, that's pretty crazy feeling to, to kind of get to that.
2: Yeah. It's a pretty incredible story. Just like 18 months and you're buying a 176 unit apartment complex. That is a really, really cool story. And you said that you were laser focused on that goal. Do you mind like sharing how you went about setting that goal and then how you stayed so focused on it?
1: That was a lot of the mentorship program I was a part of. You know, my mentor was buying, you know, larger deals like this, and he was the one who convinced me and said, You don't need to stair step it up in terms of unit count. As long as you have people on the team that understand really how this works. And so if you do get yourself, you know, into a situation where you don't have any experience on. It's like let's leverage other people's experience who have been in that position, you know, a hundred times and can can do that. So I was like, well, if that's possible, you know, I just I kind of took a leap of faith and said, yes, a, you know, a person without that kind of experience can go down this road and be successful. Then why not that be me, you know? And so I said I was going to buy a you know hundred plus, you know, BC property in San Antonio and started talking with brokers and, you know, building that team, that networking to put it all together. But it does take some motivation to continue down that road when you, there's a lot to build, but having that goal just in concrete, knowing that's what I was going for was helpful for me and going, you know, being part of a mastermind that would have regular calls and have some accountability and said, what have you done this week to get to that, you know, distant goal? There's all these steps that you got to take, but you know, just kind of continue on the grind and just understand that that's what you want to do and just don't give up. So you sold a company,
2: correct? And so you essentially, you had the runway to be able to go out 18 months without any like major income coming in.
1: Well, out um, of W2 also. Yeah. So-, okay,
2: so you're working at W2 as well?
1: Right. So when I first started the education part, I was still working a W2. I went to a different company and I was working my W2 at the same time as building a real estate business. So I was doing that as well as I had my first child in 2017. So, it was, you know, she was pretty young too. And the Good second child in 2020 right? when I started this. So, you know, full-time, you know, kids with a W2 and the real estate business, you know, building, it was, you know, quite a bit to get to <laughs> get all that. But again, you know you got to have your goals and just kind of have that repetitive action of of taking action but yeah so i did have a w2 to continue with the income to bridge me to becoming a full-time real estate
2: so when did you make the jump to full-time real estate
1: pretty recently actually so just you know i mean we're talking you know, kind of the second quarter of 2023 and it was you know q1 that i jumped so not very long ago i've kept that up through this but finally, it was time to make that leap.
2: That's amazing. So, I mean, COVID, is that right when you started your program?
1: Of course, right? That's how universe works, right? But right? Uh, you know, what was kind of nice, though, is that it allowed me really to focus, you know, because the whole world was turned upside down, right, in 2020. And so it allowed me to really dig into the content and understand how to underwrite, what kind of networking was required for this stuff. You know, networking in general was difficult, right? Cause everything was virtual or non-existent or just over the phone or whatever. So all the meetups and the conferences and all that just weren't there. So that was later that I was able to kind of build a lot of that networking. But for the first little while, yeah, I, it was hard to network.
2: Had you signed up for the group before or after, I guess the end yeah. of March of 2020
1: yeah, I, I signed up. It was a newer group. It's called Apartment Educators. And it was just formed kind of the end of 2019 or so. And I was like one of the first groups to go through the curriculum. So I signed up in like October, November. Or so that okay. the so before, you,
2: you had already had this plan and then COVID just was kind of like serendipity because you got all of this newfound freedom from your W-2 and... You were able to, wow, that's awesome. I it's mean, still
1: nights and, it's still nights and weekends and things like that, you know, you're grounded yeah. when you can, but yeah, that kind of allowed me at least to be in a comfortable place that either weren't any expectations to go out and do stuff, you know, because nobody was doing anything. So I could really focus on, you know, on the learning aspect, the education to get that accomplished and kind of looking at the videos or reading books or whatever that I needed to make that happen. It was and a lot of the communities out there started offering, you know, virtual meetups and things like that. Right at that time, because they, you know, they had to keep going. So when people started figuring that out, I was on Zooms all the time. You know, almost every night, I was on some kind of Zoom, and they were all over the country—some national, some, you know, local to San Antonio—which was kind of helpful to get an understanding of how, you know, I wasn't just with the same group of ten people every time. You know, it was a, a nationwide kind of group of networking that I was being able to do just from the comfort of my home, which was kind of interesting.
0: Nice. So this kind of mastermind group, did it meet like weekly or monthly or kind of, I mean, maybe tell us a little bit more about the mastermind and kind of how that went.
1: Sure. So it's kind of a a coaching and mastermind group. And the coaching was, I guess, every two weeks. I don't remember you know, too much right now, but it was like every two weeks for an hour or two, you know, we'd meet, go over content and talk about, you know, what was going on. And then we'd have a mastermind call with people who were operators and just, you know, and trying to ask questions to the general group, just as a mastermind as well about the same frequency about every two weeks or so. So it was a combination of content and kind of that feedback loop of, you know, people that are doing this, like, what are you looking at right now? What's hyper, you know, hyper-specific to this week, you
0: know? So that was pretty helpful. I'm assuming that you knew some of the peers in that group. Did some of the peers have some of the same success that you did, or are you kind of like an outlier?
1: Yeah, no, it's, I mean, in any group like this, there's going to be people that take it seriously and, you know, and really drive with that kind of thing. That's always a component. I think in this group, there has been, I think, a little bit more success kind of per student, because they're they're not as focused on the networking or the marketing and just trying to get as many butts and seats as they can. They're really trying to focus on the education, make sure people know the steps to get there. So I think there's a little bit higher success rate with this group. But yeah, it's a smaller group and it started out local. In fact, it, it was a meetup before it was a group like this or an education group. And so I had been going to those meetups for a couple of years and they were like, hey, we're starting this education platform, you want to be a part of it. And I jumped at the chance and said absolutely to really dive in, you know, more than just, you know, once a month getting together with these guys. It's like I could see their success. They were buying stuff. They were raising, you know, capital. They were really making the headway that I wanted to do, but I didn't know how to get there. So it really was good timing to jump in and learn directly from these people that were doing it and now here's a word from our sponsor get things done while you're on the move learn more about working with a virtual assistant through
2: off-site professionals it's a great way to get all the things done that you need to get done have freedom in your time and streamline your life by automating your business stop spending time on the tasks that you can delegate and start spending more time on your superpower call us today at 503-446-3177 or visit our website at offsiteprofessionals.com. Uptown Syndication is now offering a syndication coaching program for you to take your real estate portfolio to the next level. This is your opportunity to have experienced syndicators, AJ and Chris Shepard, coach you on your way to controlling your real estate investing future. Our coaching program will provide you with the tools and framework needed to begin syndicating real estate in your target market. Go to syndication.com today to learn more.
0: And this may be a loaded question, but was that group helpful in helping you find that like key guarantor for projects?
1: It was, yeah. They already had a kind of an existing network there. So, you know, you can chat around with that group and find the right teammates to do. It. In fact, a lot of the team came from that. Some of the team came from other communities I was a part of, but they're not a Closed kind of community. You can't. You don't just have to work with these folks in you know in the mentorship group. You can work with anybody. But yeah, absolutely. It, it got me in the right rooms. You know, to talk with the right people to do that
0: kind of stuff. Which is yeah, I'm just kind of curious. How does that conversation go? Chris and I are generally guarantors on our deals, so we haven't had to approach someone. But we have had like some larger deals come across our desk, and we're just like, gosh, how do we find? That person. And then when we do, like, how does that conversation go?
1: If they've been a key principal before or a guarantor, and that's their, they've been in that role before, it's kind of, it's not too crazy of a conversation. You know, you just talk about compensation, what, you know, what kind of equity you can provide to them. But you're also in a world like you can't be scared about asking somebody what their net worth is because that's literally their job or their role is to, you know, to be rich and sign on the line, right? <laughs> so it's, it's, a good, it's a good role to have. And most of the time, if those guys are in the room, you know, yeah, you're talking to me, you're like, hey, I need a guarantor. I'm buying a, you know, I don't know, I'm trying to get a $30 million loan. I need a net worth of $30 million. And, you know, my net worth is this, this is the Delta. You know, if you sign on the dot or sign a line, I'll give you whatever percent of equity, right? And just say, can you cover that? or being straight up ask Bascom, you know, I've had to ask people at conferences because they're like, Hey, I do guarantor stuff or KP stuff. And I'm at a conference. I'm like, well, what's your net worth? You know, and in a normal, you know, conversation with somebody, that's not typically something <laughs> you talk about, but in the real estate world, you know, it's like, that's what they're presenting as possible to do is guarantor this loan. We need to make sure they have the net worth and liquidity you know, to do what you're trying to do. So yeah, it's just another question. It's a weird question to ask, but I've had to ask it a few times and it's interesting.
0: And most, just for our audience too, I believe most loans require that you have either one times the loan amount for your net worth and 10% liquidity. Is that kind of what you found or?
1: That's what I've found that, yeah, when talking with the loan broker, that it can kind of spell out that as well. Like if you're trying to get a multifamily loan, I tend to recommend using a loan broker. They can find great deals, great rates. And really they know the audience and you can ask them, say, Hey, what's the, you know, yeah, what do they need for these loans? And yeah, typically it's the net worth has to equal the loan amount. So if it's a $12 million loan, the guarantors on the loan need to be worth $12 million on their balance sheet. And then yeah, 10% liquidity. and That's pretty much cash in the bank. I think there's some other assets that typically like
0: qualify. 401ks count and retirement yeah. funds of stuff that maybe you can't be put into real estate very easily, but yeah.
1: But yeah, they just want to make sure that if there's some need for quick cash, that somebody in the deal is liquid, that they could, you know, provide some kind of funds for that. That's the intention behind that. So there's typically net worth, liquidity, and then experience. So as a new time our first time, you know, owner, I didn't have any experience either. So if I just found a typical, you know, person with a high net worth and liquidity, that wouldn't qualify either. So this key principal also had the experience as well. So they had bought, you know, they were owners in multiple deals as the key sponsor. They had kind of qualifying ownership, if you will, of other assets in the similar asset class. And so those are the three things you need to be a KP. So I think that's kind of a lot of real estate, active real estate people's Kind of retirement almost is once they've built up their net worth and liquidity and experience, they can then take that and just become a small piece on a bunch of different, bunch of different properties, a bunch of different deals. Help newer syndicators kind of get in the door. You know, you get a pretty decent chunk of equity for just guarantoring the loan for having a high balance sheet. You know, and it's almost like a semi-retirement for a lot of real estate folks. So people are looking for that. So that shouldn't be a barrier to entry. For somebody trying to do this, they say, well, I'm not going to qualify for a $10 million loan. It's like, we'll find somebody worth 10 million bucks and they, you know, give them a chunk of the equity and they'll be happy to sign on the note as a guarantor, you know, given that you have somebody you're, you know, with experience or you have some education that you know that the business plan is going to execute.
2: Yeah. So changing gears a touch, you've bought three deals. Do you mind sharing just kind of how you found those deals
1: and how they're doing? Sure. Yeah. They've all been through brokers. So down here in San, I'm in San Antonio, Texas, and I think most deals get acquired through brokers. That's 100, 150 unit plus deals. I'm sure there's some that transact without brokers involved, but property brokers are kind of, they're a great asset, right? They're going to be able to find you the sellers or find you the buyers to make that happen. And they take, you know, they take a, you know, like 1% of the deal that's something I'm willing to pay, you know, and, and it's usually paid by the seller as well. So, you know, that's a big point is to make sure that if you're going to approach a broker and say, hey, I'm a, I'm a buyer in this market, I'd like to start looking at deals that you really do have a line of sight to that capital, you know, because if you do have to raise, you know, four or five, 10 million bucks, whatever the deal requires, you know, you're not just kind of leading them on, you know, if you're like, well, I could probably put it together, maybe that's not quite the place that I would approach a broker with, you know, cause you want to make that good first impression cause they're going to find you that deal. And all three of my deals I've found through brokers. One of them has been through a buyer's broker. So I had somebody who said, Hey, I'm going to look for you and I've got a field of brokers that I work with. I paid them a commission out of my side to find that deal and they brought me a, an excellent deal. So that's not terribly common in kind of that commercial space, but it worked out pretty well for that transaction. I will continue to use people like that in the future too. But yeah, they've all been through brokers and yeah, you know, they're bought in 21 and 22, 2021 and 2022. So they've, you know, even my oldest one is still just a little over a year old, right? So it's still fairly, I feel like it's fairly early in the process and the whole, you know, the business plan in general, but in general, they've been doing pretty well. We've been able to keep 90% plus occupancy here recently on them and just, you know, keeping people in the units while also renovating those units, you know, which is part of the business plan of value, you know, adding value and just kind of working that business plan and working with the property manager to achieve these goals for the investors. But so they're all doing, you know, they're doing well. With, of course, the right now, again, it's kind of early or Q2 in 2023, and the Fed, you know, interest rate is still, you know, still increasing, is what we see, or at least it did the last go. We've been lucky to have either fixed rate debt on the property or have a rate cap. And so that means that we have basically an insurance policy that we purchased up front that said that if the Fed rate The SOFR is the index they use, secured overnight financing rate. If that rate goes above whatever your strike price is, and let's say it's 3% for a strike price. So if the SOFR index goes above 3%, they will pay you whatever the difference is above that, right? So you pay for that policy upfront. It's kind of a hedge on interest rate inflation. So they've all kind of come now into play with this happening, and you look like a genius now. You know that you have this policy in place because it really has kept the debt service, you know, consistent. Because it, you know, well, you know, no matter how much the Fed raises their rates, we will stay at a consistent debt service. So that's nice. out quite a bit.
0: Those uh, those cap rate, the cap rate, rate cap, rate caps. That's a product offered by the mortgage broker along with the loan. I'm
1: assuming. Kind of. It's a third party. And so there's a couple of you know major players that play in the space, but it's typically a requirement on your loan to have one if it's bridge debt. They'll say, hey, you've got to buy a rate cap at this strike price. And you said, okay. And whatever it costs, it costs, right? The more the rate goes up or the more that there's a difference or the less there's a difference between the strike price and the actual, that rate cap is going to be more expensive. So when I bought mine before all the Fed was doing everything it was just an afterthought I think it was like 40 or fifty thousand bucks or so in a deal that's you know that's a purchase price of you know 15 20 million dollars that's nothing right it's like one or two percent yeah it almost didn't even register but now if you were to try to buy that same rate cap today it would be you know probably two hundred three hundred thousand dollars. You know, it's like a commodity actually trades as a commodity. It's interesting. But yeah, so it's a third party product. There might be some mortgage brokers that, you know, offer the product, but for me, they just said, Hey, it's a requirement. You got to buy it. And then I worked with my loan broker to find a dealer that sells recaps.
0: Cool. Well, that sounds like you're in a good position with those. So that's good. The thing that we've heard is hang on until 2025. Like get the ship in order and make sure things are going to be good until then. Yeah,
1: survive to 25, right? (laughs) Yeah, survive
0: to 25. You kind of touched a little bit on like asset management and you're, I don't mean to assume, but I'm assuming you're you're kind of like a one person show right now, right? You've got a couple partners that have helped out with stuff up front and maybe they do a little bit on the back end, but it sounds like you're the guy managing the property managers. Is that right?
1: That's
0: it. Yep. Tell us about that. How's that going? Are you cracking the whip on them or are they, you've got some like stellar reports that they give you and you're just happy with stuff or, I mean, we're also property managers. So we see all of the stuff that goes on day to day. So yeah, just curious what your experience is.
1: Yeah. It's super different than property management. And I kind of like that. I don't think right now with being a single man shop, right. I'm not going to be able to manage you know, 368 units on any given day, right? I'd have to have a whole staff, of course, and on-site people. So having that property management that not only would, not only reports to me, you know, as the asset manager or owner, they have a lot of other assets out there. So they can, you know, they can learn from the whole and they know they have the processes down and they have the overhead to be able to do their analytics and things like that. But yeah, I'm, I'm looking at reports. I'm doing weekly calls with them going on site to earn the properties. And, you know, when it comes to strategic decision-making, that's where I'm, I kind of put myself, but I really think that, you know, if you're going to get into the higher unit space, you do have to trust your property manager and, you know, let them use their experience, you know, to really, you know, further your business plan. So spell out the business plan and then trust, but verify, right. You know, make sure that you're you know, you've got the reports, and you're doing your own analytics and keeping them, you know, honest. But, you know, if you don't trust your property manager, then that's probably not a good property manager for you. Or maybe asset management is not a good role for you if you can't trust others. And you can then start your own property management company if you want and try to go vertically integrated if that's your, you know, what you're going to do. And a lot of people have done that. They've started out using third party. I don't know what y'all's you know, history is with property management. If you started out like that but i know a lot of people start out using third party and then either through some kind of pain point you know or necessity they've started their own property management company and just said hey i've got to go vertically integrated but that sometimes comes out of a pain point another start from the beginning so i don't know did y'all start your property management at the start we started out
0: investing in single family homes and then worked our way up duplexes fourplexes and apartments. We found syndication in like 2020, but we started our property management company in 2011.
2: So we're... I had a property manager on my first property. And I mean, it was like in 2008 or 2009. And it was just, it was in Tucson, Arizona. And it was just like a really bad downtrodden time to be a landlord. And... I had multiple evictions and like, it was not a good experience. So there was a little bit of pain with that first property manager. I'm like, what are these guys doing? I'm just paying them every month and they're not doing anything.
1: So I had an opposite almost thing. So I started out with my first house and I tried to manage it myself. And it like in the first probably six months, I think I went through two tenants you know, one trashed the place, and like I was like, "Is this property management? Like this sounds awful." Like that kind of drove me away from real estate. <laughs> and somebody introduced me to property management. I didn't even know that was a thing, really. And so, just for a single single family house, one single family house, I brought the property manager in. I guess I got lucky. I mean, part of it is recommendations of property management and all that, but I found a good one early on. And from 2012 till today. I've had the same property manager on the same property this whole time. So going on, you know, what, 11 years, he's managed the property. And I, for a single family house, like I go out there maybe once every five years. I mean, I just, and it's in San Antonio, you know, it's just out of sight, out of mind. You know, the the check shows up in the mail, you know, and it just, that's all it is. So, you know, about every year I call him and say, Hey, you know, is the thing still standing? And he's like, yep, you're good. So I've had good experiences with my property management and he will do as much, you know, reporting as I need, but I've kind of gotten to a trust point with him and said, Hey, just let it run, make it happen. And I'm in the money so much on that one, you know, having it for 11 years in a growing area, you know, it's like, you can't really screw it up anymore. So, (laughs) so it's all good, but I've had positive experiences with my property management so far and hopefully continuing with that. And, you know, again, it's the trust, but verify, like you need to Check the reports and do your own due diligence and drive by when they're not expecting you and that kind of stuff. And just make sure that, yeah, things are like they're showing on the reports and the ones and zeros on the reports are real, you know.
0: So, you're the properties that you're doing the asset management for is over like three different properties. So, I'm assuming that there's probably one to two people on each of those sites that are like an on site manager and maybe a maintenance tech or something like that.
1: We've got four two in, two out, which is two in the office, a property manager and a leasing agent, and then a lead maintenance and kind of a turnover person at the largest property. And I think we have two in, one out for the second property, and then kind of a one in, one out for the smallest one. So yeah, I keep a little bit higher or a little bit larger staff on those just to, I mean, I want to keep them fully occupied. I want to make sure that are pretty much fully occupied. But yeah, also keep the maintenance you know down. I want to do as much of that as we can within the team. That's how the property manager likes to run it too. So, same, same,
0: um, same company for over all three properties two or different companies. Oh, okay. So you've got some experience with even different property managers for apartments. <laughs> right,
1: right. And that's mostly because one of them is a smaller property. And this property manager specializes in ones that are a little bit smaller than the others that I had. So it's a 48 unit. And that's a pretty different pretty different animal than 176, right? There's a lot of difference there. And so, yeah, I wanted a property manager that focused on that size and really had a lot of experience in that size. And so that's why we brought them on. Nice. So,
0: like, can you describe or kind of tell us like what your interactions are with like that staff and like kind of how that goes? I mean, it sounds like you're doing weekly reports probably with each property, but... I'm just kind of curious, kind of like what those relationships are like.
1: Yeah. So I have a relationship with the kind of the owners of both those companies, kind of an escalation point, if you will, to make sure that, you know, they're running the full show, like they need to, and any like really large decisions, I might bring it to them and say, Hey, you know, let's talk about this. Or if I'm underwriting a new property, that's typically the person I'm working with. But mostly I'm talking with, you know, the equivalent of kind of what they call a regional manager. So they would manage multiple properties have a little bit of analytics and maybe some back-end staff that's supporting them. The on-site staff, I'd interact with some, but mostly when I come on site and I'm doing a property tour or something like that, I know them and I get to know them a little bit, but they really need to focus on what they do. And they have one, you know, one manager or one person to report to, and that's the regional, right? So I want to make sure to stay out of that communication stream. If the regional is kind of giving some information down to the on-site property manager and i'm giving them something different or conflicting information how are they going to run the property well so i run all of my information directly through the regional and that's nice. kind of my one point of contact for any any direction now if i'm curious about something or i'm like hey can you take a picture of the newly renovated unit or something like that yeah i can talk with the local or with the on-site and they can take some pictures and send me some stuff or whatever but nice. most of the time i'm that regional. Just one
0: last question here before we get to our last four, but are you having a general contractor or is the property manager doing, because you said you had like full staff for turnovers. So I'm kind of curious, like the renovations that you're doing, is it in the property management's hands or is it a separate contractor?
1: Right. For turnovers, you kind of have two grades. One is like a classic kind of typical turnover. So a unit or if a tenant leaves and you don't want to renovate that unit and do the full works to it, you know, this is a pretty light renovation. Maybe you replace floors, maybe a little bit of paint, that kind of stuff, and do some touch up. So it's a kind of a light deal. It's not a real renovation. That's when the on-site staff comes in and they do it themselves. Okay. For the full reno, yeah, we typically bring in a third-party general contractor. It is managed through the property manager. That's something I chose to do. The construction management and the property management are really two different things and most property managers can do both. But if it's a really heavy value add play, maybe you're, you know, you want to renovate immediately, renovate 50% of the units or something like that. You might want to have a direct relationship with the general contractor and run it yourself or have a construction management run through the GC or something like that. But for me, since it's so integrated with the operations, It's better, you know, to have the property manager do that construction management because they can roll in the scheduling and they know the units that are getting.
0: Well, and they're they're there, they're there, right? Yeah, they're there. They're on Like walk from the office over to the unit in five minutes and they're there.
1: (laughs) And a lot of times it's a different person within the property management company that runs the construction management because that's a different role than, you know, property management, you know? So sometimes that's a different role, but that's helpful, but it's all within property management. Cool. Well,
0: Kenneth, thanks for sharing all your knowledge. Chris, did you have any more questions before we get on to the last four?
2: No, just a really intriguing conversation on property management and construction management. Very yeah. very insightful.
0: Yeah. Well, yeah. We're, so we're getting towards the end of our time. And my first question of the last four is what's one piece of advice you would give to your 25-year-old self?
1: I was thinking about this question and I like some of the responses of some of your previous guests, but for me, it's like, if I were to give advice that would fix something and I didn't learn it by making that mistake when I was 25 years old, then I wouldn't be here. Right. You know, so I think I kind of want to keep my 25 year old self kind of naive to what I know now, because I need to learn it. Right. Right. That or just say, hey, just you know, continue to trust, but verify. I think I was a little bit more trusting at 25 than I am today with people. And, and I don't think that's bad, but there's you got to know what people's incentives are, right? Why are people helping you or interacting with you? What do they want out of the equation as well? And sometimes it's not negative, but everybody has something they want to get out of a, a relationship, right? So just be conscious of that.
2: Yeah, I mean, I'm kind of hearing... You're telling your 25-year-old self, just failing is okay. <laughs> just learn from it. Fail big so. if you want.
1: That's the that's <laughs> greatest life lesson, right? You know, you can learn it from, you know, from advice or from a podcast or something, but you got to make some mistakes along the way. And fact, just, just really learn it. <laughs> right, exactly. But, you know, make sure that you don't fail too miserably bad where there's no getting away from it. You know? <laughs> you know, fail a little bit, you know?
2: <laughs> yeah. Ah, uh, cool. Okay. Next question. What was your first
1: entrepreneurial endeavor? So because this is real estate, I wanted to think about a real estate you know, entrepreneurial endeavor and you didn't say it had to be successful, but so when I was going <laughs> to college, my buddy and I, who were friends growing up, we both went to Texas A&M together and In the dorm room, instead of, you know, going out and partying and stuff, we were talking about, you know, how does one become rich? You know, we want to become rich. and we were reading rich dad, poor dad and stuff like that. Right. And so in our dorm room, we ended up kind of developing a business plan to buy a single family house in College Station, Texas, where Texas A&M is. And we were going to buy like a five bedroom house, have two of the bedrooms and rent out the other three. So we didn't know the term house hacking. That's what this is. And so we built this business plan. It was in a time where money was free for the most part. Like, you know, they were giving money to anybody back when, this was before 2008. And so we went to the local bank and they're like, yeah, absolutely. We'll finance the whole thing, including renovations with like almost no, you know, it it was just a stupid loan, right? We had no (laughs) business doing that, but we needed a guarantor, you know, speaking of guarantors. So we built this whole proposal and all this. And we went home to our folks and sat them down on the couch. And we lived in the same neighborhood. So we brought them all over to the same house, presented this wonderful real estate opportunity. No money out of their pocket. They just had to sign on this note. And, you know, unanimously, all four of them said no. <laughs> Said no, (laughs) y'all. To learn, you know, you don't need to be landlords. That's going to be a whole thing, you know, and it's going to take away from your school. And they were probably right, but going through the effort of building the business plan and thinking through it and doing all the analytics of how to buy a property was really intriguing to me and really kind of helped me just instill the fact that I will be a real estate investor at some point. Maybe it's not today. And I'm sure that house, you know, would have made you know a bunch of money for everybody, right? You know, it would have been a great investment, but was it the right time to invest because of the fact that we were in school trying to learn, you know, something else, not real estate? So be it. But that was, I guess, my first entrepreneurial. You know,
2: Did you at least get an A in your business class?
1: <laughs> <laughs> uh, well, we were both business majors, and we both graduated. Let's say that.
2: <laughs> well, I mean, you had to have used that proposal for some assignment, right? <laughs> well,
1: I was, in, uh, I was in the IT business side, so we weren't focused on real estate at all. So we, unfortunately I couldn't use that for my school, but.
0: <laughs> well, well certainly, certainly a good exercise going through it. That's yeah. great. Yeah. All right. Next question, which you've touched on both aspects of this, but I'm uh, curious to hear your answer now, but how has your formal and informal training shaped your journey?
1: It's interesting because in terms of very formal, talking about like college education, you know, I probably retain, you know, one week worth of information that I actually learned there throughout the time I was there for four years, right? So I don't think the practical knowledge comes as much from, you know, the kind of university level stuff, unless it's something you're doing like medicine or something like that, right? It's very specific, but you know, when I was at business school, you kind of learn how to learn how to learn, you know, learn how to structure knowledge and be able to, you know, pass courses on your own time. You know, you don't have your your folks there to keep you going like you do in high school for a lot of people, right? That was a good time in my life to learn how to structure thought, you know, how businesses really are, you know, built, not necessarily how they're run. I don't think you learned that until later. But that was a big part of my formal education is just learning how, you know, I don't know, just in general, how to structure thought. So going into, I guess, formal education for real estate investing helped me quite a bit in kind of structuring the steps, the required people, you know, the network that's required to take these down, things like that. But and then the informal part. You know, it was a lot of networking, a lot of you know, meetups. I've been going to the same meetup that's been going on since I think twenty seventeen or so every month. And I think I've missed maybe one or two. And of course, over COVID, that got a little funny, but that kind of stuff is really helpful to really, I guess, understand how to do things on a regular basis and be just you know be there regardless of what's happening, right? So that's kind of I guess the informal part of my training is just being around other people who are doing what you want to do just being in the same room with them right i mean they talk about you're the average of the closest five people to you so if you're around five other people that are all stealing cars you know you're probably going to be really good at stealing cars but if you surround yourself around real estate investors then just naturally you're going to know more about real estate investing
2: well wow. yeah that is awesome like it. all right and our final question what was or is your biggest mistake? And what did you learn?
1: Yeah, I think this kind of, I've kind of touched on a little bit, but kind of goes back to the advice I would give my 25 year old self too, is the biggest lesson I think I learned was working with, this is on the second deal that I bought, the second single family deal that I bought back in like 2012, 2013 area, is that I was working with a general contractor who I thought I could trust, and I kind of put some faith into, and I understood a little bit about what they were doing, and that didn't go as well. Communication wasn't there, and we ended up, they running off with my money. So, brought in a second general contractor that was like, oh, that's terrible that somebody would do that, and kind of going through, and he started doing the, you know, the rest of the work, kind of did the same thing. And so, I think I lost some money on that single family deal. It was all my money, but it was still, you know, money lost in a deal. What I learned from that is that trust would verify, like, you know, get good recommendations for people, understand the process, understand their motivation and make sure you are protecting yourself, you know, generally, you know, you don't have to be, you know, cranky and like a jerk about everything and, you know, and hate everybody around you, but you can still protect yourself in your own interests and still be successful. So that's a big thing of what I do is make sure that when I'm working with somebody, you know, yeah, you kind of get to know them. You need to have a good working relationship, but yeah, just verify what their intentions are and get some recommendations from people who to work with.
0: Awesome. Thank you, Kenneth. Yeah. You've definitely been listening to, yeah, to our podcast because we say trust the verify
1: <laughs> quite a bit. Oh, dude, yeah, right. That's, that's so that's big awesome. Part of my well, that's
0: cool. very cool. Well, hey, Kenneth, it's been great having you on. If our listeners want to get a hold of you or learn more about you, what is the best way or method to search you out?
1: Yeah, you can probably just Google me, but you know, summerscapital.com is my website. Go there, and you can you know put in some information, and I can reach out to you. We can schedule a call. Uh, I'm on LinkedIn and Instagram quite a bit. So you can find me there. I think I'm Sumner's Capital at Instagram and just Kenneth Sumner's on LinkedIn, but reach out. I'd love to chat with people.
0: Awesome. Amazing. Yeah. Well, thank you so much for being on the show and you know opening up your inner workings of a lot of how the syndication and capital works. We appreciate it. And I know I learned
2: some stuff today and I'm sure our listeners did too. Yeah, I really too. enjoyed your story. So thanks for coming on. Thank you for having me.
0: Thank you for listening to this episode of the Real Estate Professionals Investing Podcast on WIN, your community of investing knowledge for growth. We hope that this episode has increased your knowledge and added value to your path to freedom. If you would, please take a second to rate us so that we can get more great investors to interview. If you or someone that you know wants to be on, please visit westsideinvestors.com and fill out our form to be on the show. Thank you again and enjoy your day.